Broadcasting from the studios of Business Radio X, it's time for Litigator's Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, guiding clients through challenging workplace legal issues. Now, here are your hosts. Good morning. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Litigator's Lounge, your go-to source for insightful discussions on workplace dynamics and legal issues. I'm Jackie Voronov, and I'm here with the always effervescent Shiley Bannon. How are you doing today, Shiley? Good morning, Jackie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How we, How's everything by you? It's actually cold here in Florida. And is what? What do you define as cold? It's 51 degrees. Shut your mouth right now. <laughs> I see snow outside of your window on the cars. We had snow. We had a typhoon yesterday. We had a state of emergency. It's freezing here. I don't want to hear your complaints. We had a state of emergency also, and there are lots of jokes going around about how there were alligators that were swimming in the streets down here, but that's just a normal Tuesday in, in Jacksonville. <laughs> <laughs> the Litigator's Lounge is now open. What are you drinking today, Jackie? My usual. It's a lychee martini kind of day. You know why? Why? I'm glad you asked. You know what today is? What is today? It's not my birthday, so you don't have to feel bad that you didn't forget it. Today is- Is it the semi-annual sale? (laughs) At Nordstrom's? Yeah. No, I wish. (laughs) It's January 16th, which means it's National Religious Freedom Day. And if that's a martini, I don't know what does. Well, in that case, then I'm going to actually put aside the martini and I'm going to pull out some Manischewitz. (laughs) That's good stuff. (laughs) Who knows what's going to happen in in 15 minutes? (laughs) We're we're about to get crunked and lit at the litigator's lounge. All right. So Jackie, what is religious freedom? Because I will tell you that when I hear things about religious freedom, um, the first thing that pops into my mind is all of the people that I went to high school with who become constitutional law experts on Facebook anytime uh, there is a decision issued by the Supreme Court about religious rights. I think that religious National Religious Freedom Day, even though it's a little known holiday and not a federal one, I think it's actually really important. And here's a fun fact. I use the term fun fact because it's fun for me and I'm a giant kind of history dork. But the statute goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. And this legislation became the basis for what today is known as the free as the establishment clause of the first amendment of the united states constitution and it led to the freedom of religion for all americans so it's actually a big deal so to answer your question what is religious freedom i think it's a right that many people think is guaranteed everywhere because of the first amendment but that's not entirely 100% accurate right freedom of religious expression is something that's prohibited by the government. And Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits employers from discriminating against employees or applicants because of their religious beliefs. And it requires them to reasonably accommodate the religious beliefs and practices of employees or applicants, unless doing so would impose an undue hardship on the business. So here's what we take away from that. You've got two protections, right? Religious freedom is protection from discrimination. It's also the right to reasonable accommodations for the religious practices or beliefs. And I think today we're just going to focus more on the accommodation aspect of Title VII because there was such a major shift in the analysis of these claims by the Supreme Court in its ruling last summer. And I just see your eyes lighting up about that. 
I can see. Yes. Yes. I am so excited that we get to talk about the Supreme Court today because as you may or may not know, or could probably guess, I am a huge Supreme Court nerd. When I could guess, yeah. Full confession, when I was in law school, my friends and I actually had a fantasy Supreme Court league where we would guess and have our, similarly to Fantasy Football League, about which justices were going to decide which way on different landmark opinions. Stop it right now. Shut the front door. It was really fun. I really enjoyed myself. And unfortunately, nobody wanted to continue it into practicing with me. But I still followed the Supreme Court like a fangirl, especially for Justice Roberts. Oh, I was a Justice Scalia girl all the way. I had such a crush on him. He spoke at my law school graduation and I just looked at him with such fangirl eyes. I was like, oh, you're so smart. You're so offensive, but I don't care. <laughs> it's just like did he did he use the word higgledy piggledy when he was speaking to your law school? No. But if oh. he did, it might have ended our relationship right then and there. The one we were in my head. <laughs> I actually I met Justice Roberts when I was in law school and and it was he was a very lovely man and a very thoughtful man. You could tell that he actually is the kind of person who who puts a lot of thought into every single word that comes out of his mouth. Because every single word that he writes is parsed by the public down to every syllable. But I found out that he's actually shorter than I am. Never meet your heroes. <laughs> you, you don't need to discriminate against him on the basis of his height. That's illegal, Shiley. You should know that. You should know better. That's illegal in New York. Well, it's illegal in just fine. Moving on. <laughs> I'm in Florida. In Florida, anything goes in Florida. Just <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so back to the Supreme Court in 2023, in June, during the last week of session in 2023, the Supreme Court decided a case called Groff versus DeJoy, which involves Amazon, actually, as one of the villains. Um, Amazon, what, what were the facts of, of Groff for those of us who, who don't necessarily know and aren't familiar? All right. Well, Groff versus DeJoy involves a postal carrier named Gerald Groff, who was hired by the United States Postal Service. And Mr. Groff is an evangelical Christian who believes for religious reasons that Sunday should be devoted to worship and rest. Typically, his job did not involve him working on a Sunday. And I have lots of thoughts about that because I know I like to get my mail on Sundays, but postal service. No, that uh, I did you know, do you get your mail on Sundays? No, but this is where Amazon comes in. So I don't get regular letters and thankfully I don't get bills on Sundays, but the United States Postal Service entered into a contract with Amazon. My favorite. To facilitate Sunday deliveries for Amazon. Mr. Groff then transferred to a different postal station that was more rural that did not make Sunday deliveries, but Amazon followed to that station. Groff continued to refuse to work on Sundays, and he received progressive discipline action for failing to work on Sundays, and then he ultimately resigned. He sued the United States Postal Service under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, claiming that the United States Postal Service could have accommodated his Sunday Sabbath practice without undue hardship on the conduct of USPS's business. I can't tell you that there haven't been times that I didn't want to sue the United States Postal Service, but I think that my reasons might be very different from Mr. Groff's reasons. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened with his lawsuit? 
So the district court, the federal district court where the case was pending, granted summary judgment to the United States Postal Service on the grounds that the case law in that circuit held that any accommodation that required an employer to bear more than a de minimis cost to provide a religious accommodation would be considered an undue hardship. Uh, And on appeal then to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the summary judgment was upheld with the Third Circuit finding that by exempting Mr. Groff from Sunday work, an undue hardship was imposed on the United States Postal Service because it had imposed on his co-workers, it had disrupted the workplace and workflow, and it had diminished other employee morale, as if that is something that could even happen with postal workers. Uh, (laughs) And therefore, the de minimis standard had been met that was previously used by these courts before the Supreme Court jumped in. So then Groff appealed to the Supreme Court. So what did the Supreme Court find? In this case, it may be very surprising to a lot of people who think that the current makeup of the Supreme Court is incredibly divided. But to those of us who follow the Supreme Court know that they tend to agree more than they disagree. The Supreme Court unanimously rejected the de minimis standard that had been long used by the federal courts. And it established for all federal courts in the United States that an employer who denies a religious accommodation has a burden of showing that the granting of an accommodation would result in, here's the magic language, substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So this is the new magic language? What does that even mean? Basically, it means that there is a requirement that the court look on a case-by-case basis to show that there has to be an imposition of some additional costs that have to be not just nominal. It has to be excessive to show an undue hardship. They would have to be excessive or unjustifiable for that particular employer in its particular business. So courts are going to have to take into account a lot of different factors, the size of the employer, for example. So what might be an accommodation for Amazon might be a very different accommodation than one that a mom and pop country store could take and manage to keep its doors open. So did the decision stand for the proposition that the burden which higher now before by de minimis, does that suggest that employers were able to get away with proverbial murder? And now the court is saying, hold up, uh, we're not going to make it that easy for you. Undue burden um, was never meant to be something that just is, is so easy. It has to be, to use their verbiage, substantial, right? And and without getting too in the weeds on it, the Supreme Court spent a lot of time in the DeGroff case discussing the de minimis standard and how it was taken out of context from a pre-1972 Supreme Court decision called Hardison that was, on its face, it looked like a religious discrimination and religious accommodation case, but really was decided on on a labor contract dispute uh, basis instead. And the de minimis language was dicta in that case. And so the Supreme Court in the DeGroff case spent a lot of time actually talking about how that was never meant to be the standard. And they're happy that they had this opportunity to clarify what they had meant 50 years ago when Hardison was decided. So yes, the standard is, they would not say that it is higher. They would say that they have clarified what it always should have been. But in practicality, 
this is going to be a bigger burden for employers to meet than that de minimis standard. And I think that there are some slippery slope issues that employers are going to have to deal with in deciding when to deny accommodation requests and thinking about the exposure that they would have, not just from a liability perspective, but also from a discovery perspective in in new religious accommodation cases. Yeah. Groff never really Groff did not go so in my reading of it, and I think that most contemporary legal scholars' reading of it is the same, which is Groff didn't really overrule Hardison. They involved very similar fact questions and fact patterns. Hardison involved an airline worker who, for religious reasons, would not work on a Saturday. Groff also involved a similar dispute brought by an employee who was a Sunday Sabbatarian and claimed that he was unable to work on Sundays. And what these facts both demonstrate is how even fairly routine questions for routine requests for an accommodation can snowball into really difficult legal questions with very few clear answers. And I don't think that the Supreme Court in Groff really answered any of those questions. And if anything, I think that um, it, it leaves us with still a really extraordinarily messy area of the law. And I just... I don't think that even judges post-Groff acting in good faith would still be able to draw an appropriate line governing what requests for religious accommodations should be honored and which ones should be denied. Well, for example, one of the things that the DeGroff says, to your point, is that an impact on coworkers is really only relevant to the extent that those impacts go on to affect the conduct of the business. So just because a person's coworkers might not like the fact that they need to take off Sundays or Saturdays or whatever the day is, that that cannot be considered to be an undue hardship. That was specifically addressed. Standing alone. Standing alone. Now, if it affected things in terms of you have mass resignations, is that something that that a an employer could bring up in terms of it causing an increase in costs? Of course, it, it there's a way to quantify everything and you don't have to just build your whole case on one factor. It's not enough to say, all right, it's going to decrease employee morale by forcing another employee to come in on Sundays to cover your shift. If that's your whole argument, you're going to have a, a problem from a defense perspective. But you can and should include that in your analysis of the many ways in which this accommodation request impacts your business. And there is a way to quantify that. Jackie, one thing that I'm curious about, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this is since they're really focusing on costs and the undue hardship, it almost sounds like from a financial perspective, what do you think the risk is that employers, if they try to defend on the basis of undue hardship against a religious accommodation, what do you think the risks are that a business is going to have to open their financial books, their profit and loss statements and discovery in order to defend their decisions. I don't think that this is anything new. From Even before this decision, employers were taking the tack that there's an ex a considerable expense associated with whatever the particular accommodation might be. In the context of vaccine mandate cases, employers were making arguments that here's how much business and revenue is lost in the event that our whole workforce gets COVID. And here's what it's going to cost us to deal with hiring 
temporary staff to fill these positions and what have you. So employers have historically had to provide some information about finances in in most cases. It doesn't mean that you get carte blanche into opening up all your profit and loss statements and and whatnot. I, I don't think it needs to go that far. Do you think, though, that by the Supreme Court specifically putting costs rather than talking about just the general business operations, which is some more nebulous language that has been used in describing undue hardship by some of the circuit courts, but by the Supreme Court specifically referencing costs, uh, which sounds like a financial aspect, do you think that will embolden the plaintiff's bar to be more forceful or more pointed in their efforts at discovery of financial statements of employers? Certainly, if the employer puts that in issue first, if the employer doesn't go so far as to say the only reason that we can't do this accommodation is because of the financial consequences that we have to bear the brunt of, then what basis would the plaintiff's bar have to request this information? However, if the employer's defense is to say, no, this will be substantially and financially intolerable for us, and here's why, then it shouldn't come as a surprise to the employer that they have to back that up. If you're going to write the check, dot, dot. So what are some of the things that you think that employers should probably be training their managers about in terms of documenting their decisions with regard to the religious accommodation uh, requests in order to avoid opening the door to that kind of discovery? Nothing has changed in terms of what I believe best practices to be in terms of addressing employee accommodation requests. The only thing that changed with Groff is what the analysis entails and what really constitutes undue hardships. Financial is just one component of it. It is still fair to consider what effect this has on your other staff members. All of that is still fair game. You just have to look at it from the lens of the totality of circumstances. Is your question asking what we should do in terms of the accommodation or whether or not they should actually address whether the belief is sincerely held in the first place. Uh, My first question was really about cost and what kinds of documentation should go into decisions about religious accommodation requests. But I think that you bring up a good point in terms of educating our listeners, uh, especially those who maybe are newer to employment law, about what the process is in general when an employee comes to you with a request for religious accommodation. So so carry on. All right, thanks. <laughs> Here's my takeaway. And let me preface what I'm about to say by expressly disclaiming that anything I'm about to say is me rendering legal advice or creating any kind of attorney-client relationship. But if I could have one wish granted following today's episode, it would be for employers to hear me when I say that it is a losing battle to debate theology with employees anytime they request a religious accommodation. And I don't care if you think that your employee's belief is particularly out there and they come to you and telling you that they think that Lord Valdemort is their Lord and Savior. Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, have you had any cases with them? No, but did you know that there's a Church of the Holy Weed? No, what's the weed? Is it like the weed or yeah no it's the international church of cannabis and they're committed to the sacramental use of marijuana it's a thing okay um, yeah i bet sunday school there is fun i'm sure that and monday through saturday also i don't know <laughs> i don't care if that's what the employee is coming to you and saying and in the during covid 
we had this tidal wave of claims where employees were coming to their jobs and their supervisors and they were claiming my religion prevents me from getting the vaccine or my and then spelling out here's why and they were giving these like tomes of scripture and talking about here's their newfound religious beliefs and i think that employers out there who are listening would do well to listen to me when i say the smart thing to do in this situation is not to question what an employee considers a sincerely held belief and if you don't believe me you can ask consolidated coal company who was ordered to pay more than half a million dollars to an employee who retired rather than have his hand scanned by a biometric scanner because the employee believed that by doing so, he was imprinting the mark of the beast on his hand. And the EEOC took up the case. Of course it did. Yeah. I see by your facial expression, you have not heard about the Consolidated Coal Company case before. No, I have actually. It's been a long time since I've thought of that one, but I remember my reaction when I first read it and that was similar. So, yep. Yeah. I mean, Consolidated Coal gives you about 500,000 reasons not to question the belief. And I'm going to tell you uh, just a little bit about the facts because I think it's really relatable more so than than you would think. So the employer started using biometric hand screening to track the attendance and hours of the employees that worked. And it accommodated other employees before from the requirement to use that. There was an employee who had some fingers missing from their hand, and therefore they re- they gave them an accommodation. They found another way to log them in without actually scanning. So in this particular instance, the employee, we'll call him Mr. Plaintiff, for all intents and purposes, he provided a written explanation that he had a religious belief and he offered non-biometric ways for the company to monitor his comings and goings. And the company said no dice, right? Consolidated Coal said that the biometric screening vendor had faced this question before and they prepared all these documents and they said that placing the mark of the beast on employees' hands was not what was happening in this case. And the Mr. Plaintiff decided not to take his Bible lessons from the biometric vendor, and he's filed the EEOC charge instead. And so snowballed this entire religious, sincerely held belief debate. And the moral of the story from this case really is that you're going to have situations where your employees come to you with what you perceive to be fringe beliefs, things that aren't necessarily commonly understood, practiced, or you may not have even heard of them. But that doesn't mean that they're not recognized beliefs or that the employee doesn't sincerely hold them. Now, to be clear, I don't necessarily share certain religious beliefs with people I work with, people that I've met, but I I don't think that it's within my purview to tell somebody what they can and should believe in. And legally, from an employer perspective, it really doesn't matter what you or I think, right? The critical question is whether that religious belief is sincerely held, not whether it's correct in our opinions. Okay, but what about if you have an employee who comes to you with a request for a religious accommodation, let's say a Jewish employee who is asking for Yom Kippur off. And for those of you who are not familiar, Yom Kippur is the what's considered to be the holiest day of the year in Judaism. It's a day where even Jews who don't attend synagogue on a weekly or daily basis tend to go to synagogue or refrain from working on that particular day. So what if this employee asks for Yom Kippur off, but They've been working for you for five years and they've never asked for Yom Kippur off before. Can you say, is this really your sincerely held religious belief? I understand that it's a a day, but 
you're not that observant of a Jew. Two things. I would never recommend that any employer ever tell an employee, hey, you're not that observant of a Jew. It doesn't matter, first of all, because you don't have to have spent your entire life being a devout Jewish person, a devout Christian, devout Muslim to suddenly shift your level of commitment or how theological you become what, and how much you practice your religion. I, I can change my mind tomorrow and decide that I want to go to temple every single week and every single day. And that's well, I'm well within my rights to do that. So you as an employer can certainly question internally whether the employee is actually sincerely committed to that belief. But I, I do think that you're going to have a losing argument at the end of the day, especially since the EEOC a lot, it considers it a lot more fluid. As far as the EEOC is concerned and our case law is concerned, employees don't have to have always been consistent. That's just one way that you can attack their belief, but it's just not, I, I don't think it's smart or best practices to do so at all. All right. What about the actual reasonable accommodation uh, discussion with the employee? So you think sometimes about in disability accommodation requests, how the employer doesn't have necessarily as an affirmative a duty to find an accommodation. It's to decide whether an accommodation that's requested by an employee is uh, reasonable under that particular standard. Is it the same kind of conversation that happens in now religious accommodation requests, or does an employer have a different obligation? What triggers your obligation is a little different because under the ADA, the employer's obligation to really engage in what's known as the interactive process isn't really triggered until the employee puts you on notice that they need a disability accommodation. It's not the same for religion. It's far more um, employee-friendly in that regard for a case proceeding under Title VII because as soon as the employee, and Groff made this clear, which is as soon as the employee puts you on notice, regardless of how they do that, even if they suggest to you that they might need an accommodation, the burden is now on the employer to engage in the process and figure out what a reasonable accommodation might be. So there is no magic trigger. There's no request specifically that an employee has to make under Title VII religious accommodation to say, hey, Mr. Employer, I want an accommodation. And your example, a Jewish person who wants Yom Kippur off. If you're aware that the employee is Jewish and some other employees take that holiday off, you do have an obligation to then assess whether or not that employee might need an accommodation. And in that regard, I would tell you the analysis hasn't really changed pre or post Groff, which is you have an obligation to engage in an interactive process and to consider what accommodations might be available to that employee. What changed with Groff is how you define what an undue burden might be. And what I would recommend and what I've started doing is considering options that you might not previously have thought would work and engage that employee. Ask them what they're looking to do. Sometimes employees will ask for accommodations and they won't even know what it is that they're asking for, right? They know that they want a day off or they know they want something, but how the employer goes about achieving it is the question. What about employers who have a workforce that is subject to a collective bargaining agreement. And the collective bargaining agreement has certain 
standards in it that may make finding that most reasonable accommodation difficult for the employer? How do collective bargaining agreements and unions come into play when determining the accommodations that are available? That's exactly what happened in Hardison back in 1972, which is the employer argued that the burden on the other employees who had seniority would violate the collective bargaining agreement and therefore present an undue hardship. Groff doesn't necessarily change that. But it does stand for the idea that um, it's not enough standing alone, right? Nobody's telling you that you have to go violate your collective bargaining agreements, but there are ways that you can evaluate option three. There might it, It's not as black and white as it's either I'm violating the collective bargaining agreement or not. So for employers who maybe are entering into collective bargaining agreement negotiations or renegotiations in the near future, do you think that Groff is going to be something that's discussed at the bargaining table at all? Absolutely. And it should be. I don't think that Groff necessarily has changed how people should deal with a unionized workforce. And any union has always... I think, or at least any union worth its salt, has always considered these issues, and religion has always been something that they consider anyway um, when negotiating the terms of their CBAs. All right. Let me ask you this before I forget, because it, it pops into my head, and I think that you raise a good point, which is, do you think that the Groff decision went too far in swinging the pendulum from Hardison in that on, on the one hand, there were employers who thought that the Hardison decision meant that anything more than a trifling incursion on their religious faith was sufficient to justify a denial of an accommodation request. And Groff seems to say, swing the pendulum in the other direction. It says, no, it's got to be substantial. It's got to be you know, a, a heavy burden. Do you think it swung the pendulum too far? If you read the the justification or the decision explanation from the Supreme Court itself, and who am I to disagree with SCOTUS other than an armchair expert, I think that what they really did is they just clarified. And like you've been saying, nothing has really changed. Now, the way that the lower courts, the, the district courts and the circuit courts, and even state courts who follow federal law in interpreting the state versions of Title VII, the way that they may look at it may change. And I think that for a while, at least, there is going to be some confusion amongst the courts in terms of what looking for those case specific examples that you have under partisan, and that's an air quotes, de minimis standard. There's going to be a lot of unsettled and maybe inconsistent decisions amongst the circuits. But I think if you read the way that the Supreme Court put it is they're really just clarifying it. And like you said, nothing has actually changed. It's the way that the courts are going to look at this and maybe the way that defense attorneys and plaintiff's attorneys are going to have to uh, argue and litigate these cases a little bit more. But I, I tend to agree with you that I think that the practices of employers, other than maybe getting a little bit tighter in terms of documentation of the process and the decision-making considerations that go into the decisions is going to stay the same, but don't we as defense attorneys always want our clients to do more documentation? Yeah, right. I, I just um, I can't help but wonder whether, in the worst case scenario, what this is, what this line of cases is doing is emboldening. Are we giving managers, for example, the right to hire LGBTQ employees? 
Or are we allowing them to treat women differently than men? Is that what's next? And I don't know the answer to that. But if prior cases are any indication, I think that we could be going down that road, right? I think that if you look at the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where the owners of the cake shop were permitted essentially to discriminate against LGBTQ people, right? Or the Hobby Lobby case, where the employer was permitted not to provide insurance coverage for contraception. Sure. And I think that the courts in those cases made efforts to try to decide those cases under different standards, under the insurance standard. And some of it has to do with the Commerce Clause as opposed to Title VII. But I do see that is certainly something we're going to have to watch. Now, you told me before we started recording today that you had actually looked at some of the opinions that have come out post-Groff. And what did you find in your deep dive on Westlaw? Ugh, I love Westlaw. I don't know what's more, more serious, my love for Westlaw or your love for Justice Roberts. Oh, Justice McDreamy. Justice <laughs> I love Westlaw. And I when I'm in Westlaw, I go down this like rabbit hole and I'll spend like, like hours on there just like reading these cases. And the magic number in this case is 41. There were 41 cases that have been decided by lower courts since Groff. And I went into this with this kind of preconceived mindset that I thought that they would all be like, prior to Groff, we would have decided it this way, but then Groff came and we decided that we have to be more stringent and we're deciding it this way and plaintiff, you win. And it wasn't that. The decisions seemed to say essentially our ruling is the same pre-Groff or post-Groff. We're just going to explain how we got there a little bit differently. There was a case not last month. I forget that we're in January of 24 already. It was from November, which seems like it was just yesterday. But the Ninth Circuit, which typically I always have to do mental gymnastics to really understand what's happening over there. We all know how I feel about California. But there was a Ninth Circuit case where an actress was claiming that her refusal to vaccinate was the decision, was the basis for a decision not to give her a movie role, right? And what the defense did in that case was it showed the court, it didn't take make the argument that if we get COVID or there's a health crisis and therefore it's an undue hardship, right? What they said was they quantified it in terms of dollars. And they said that in that case, it would cost $300,000 in production costs if certain crew members got COVID. Now, in what we know now about the vaccine, am I sure that getting a vaccine necessarily prevents COVID or the spread of COVID and it would have made an ultimate difference? I'm not really sure, but that wasn't really relevant in that case. But the court accepted the argument that $300,000 was substantial and therefore, with due regard for Groff, it upheld the employer's decision not to hire her for that movie role and not get vaccinated. I don't necessarily think that courts are focusing exclusively on finances one way or the other. They are still looking at certain intangible consequences and then assessing whether those are considered substantial in the grand scheme of the, the business. But I didn't see any decisions that really shocked me or that were, gave me the, well, we overrule ourselves. And up and until six months ago, we would have thought this and now we don't. I, I just didn't see that. And maybe it'll play out, I think. But again, I also do think that there's this tendency nowadays for cases to go to mediation, cases to go to arbitration, and we're just not going to see the same amount of published opinions that we might otherwise have 20 years ago. 
I think that this is a, a really good and interesting way to commemorate and celebrate National Religious Freedom Day to think about our freedom in, in the workplace. And I'm going to go do a little bit more research about the International Church of Weed, just because <laughs> I'm very interested in that. Now has maybe... If somebody's a new parishioner. <laughs> But we do have some important updates for our listeners. Jackie and I actually have created a a website where you can email the kitchen, so to speak, email the bartenders. It's litigatorslounge at hallboothsmith.com. So for all of you who are listening, if you have any questions or feedback, I know that your mother, Jackie, probably would love to give some unsolicited advice so she can email us there. Um, you just go, you went there? You you brought my mother into this? She has to be proud of you, but you told us how she always has lots of opinions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If she hasn't emailed you yet, I'd be shocked. And we also are going to put the link to the Supreme Court decision in Groff versus DeJoy in the episode notes for anybody who wants to read Justice Alito's majority opinion or Justice Sotomayor's uh, concurring opinion. Although it is not Justice Roberts who wrote it, Justice Alito, I think, did a very clear job explaining the basis of this opinion. And it was a fun read for a Supreme Court nerd like me. When Uh, you write him your next love letter, can you ask him maybe for some clarity and maybe to give us employment defense attorneys some more guidance in terms of what would necessarily constitute undue burden? I try to keep the Capitol Police away from me, so I have refrained from sending too many letters. But when I Valentine's Day is right around the corner, yeah, I wonder if they would think that a, a Valentine with a little red heart lollipop would be a security threat or not. I don't know. Shiley, you are a precious treasure, and I think you need to be protected at all costs. <laughs> all right, that's it from the Litigators Lounge for today, everybody. Thank you for listening, and cheers! Cheers. Thank you for joining us on Litigator's Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, helping clients navigate the complexities of workplace legal issues. For more information, go to hallboothsmith.com. Litigator's Lounge is a production brought to you by Hall Booth Smith. This podcast is published for the purposes of providing general information and education on topics which include those related to the law and legal issues but the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice. Listening to this podcast or utilizing the information contained in it in any way does not constitute, nor does it create, an attorney-client relationship between you and Hall, Booth, Smith, or its lawyers. The contents of this podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a professional attorney licensed in your jurisdiction.